welcome and good morning, good afternoon and good evening, wherever you may be on the planet. This is World Smart, a podcast of the Errant Fox Schiff Law Firm. We are your hosts and international practice group co-chairs. I am Hunter Carter. And I'm Malcolm McNeil. And we'll be talking with you with our partners and special guests about topics of interest in the law of the international business and business-related communities. We are proud to be providing this World Smart introduction, the first one in our newly combined firm. Well, Malcolm, today we have a very special episode, not just because this is our first World Smart podcast as the combined law firm Errant Fox Schiff, but because we have two amazing guests who are going to help our listeners understand the complex and exploding scene on sanctions that are being imposed as a result of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. With us today are Kay Georgie, who leads our international trade group and has over 30 years of experience advising clients on all aspects of international trade, particularly in the area of sanctions and FCPA and import and customs matters. She is our first returning guest. We already had a terrific interview with her before. We also have with us Matthew Tuckband, who also assists clients with international trade and financial matters, focusing specifically on OFAC-related issues. So Matthew and Kay, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're pretty excited to be here. Malcolm, let me turn it over to you to kick off the questions. Sure. And and let me echo what Hunter said. Uh, Thank you, Kay and Matthew, for joining us because we know that you've been very busy as of late and trying to feel the inquiries from everyone. And as you may know, my practice has an Asia focus, but a lot of these clients are OEMs and they're doing import, export, all kinds of work. And the broader question is the queries I'm getting are, what do I have to worry about? What is it that I should be focusing on? That was a direct question on Monday from an in-house counsel who is working with an internationally based firm that's working in a variety of countries. And I said, let me get back to you because we have the experts who will talk about it. So I know it sounds like a broad question, but when a client comes to us and says, what should I be worried about? How do we respond? How do we narrow that focus for them? And perhaps I'll start with UK. Sure. So when we get a broad based question like this, we try to figure out what exactly the client is doing that touches on Russia or as of today, Belarus, because the U.S. government announced Belarus sanctions yesterday and already the Department of Commerce has published new regs, a mere 60 pages or so, a little shorter than the Russian reg that I had a delightful time reading last night. So we try to figure out what are they doing? Are they exporting goods to Russia and Belarus? I mean, you know, they have facilities in Belarus. How do they interact? Because there are two main kinds of sanctions, two primary ones. There's the ones that apply to product, software, and technology, export controls. And I do a lot of that. And then there are the economic sanctions. Matthew does more of those. We both do both of those things. Economic sanctions has more to do with the particular entities that you're doing business with, banks that may be put on a specially designated national list or cut off from SWIFT. So what we do try to do is we try to figure out what they're doing and how they may be impacted and go from there. Matthew? Sure. I mean, just to echo most of what, what Kay just said, you know, focusing on what the footprint is in Russia, you know, what what the connection is, and then how it might trigger the sanctions provisions. Right now, we're getting a lot of questions in about banks, because there's still a lot of business with Russia that one can do. The president hasn't put sanctions on all of Russia, but the payment structures and the ability to get paid for those imports and exports is getting more difficult because a lot of banks are being sanctioned. So sometimes we find that there's a good footprint in Russia, but it really doesn't touch any of the sanctions. But the way they're getting paid will hit the sanctions and people need to be aware of that. So a lot of those sort of questions are coming in. 
Can you give us uh, then uh, I will throw it out to both of you. What types of sanctions are being put in place by the government? And also we're hearing a lot about the unified approach that our allies are having along with us in this field. Where do we have agreement and where do we have disagreement? I was just going to name the allies, you know, the European Union countries, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand and Japan are all of them imposing similar economic sanctions and extremely similar export controls, which is actually perhaps the more surprising thing. We have had some degree of unity in the past with respect to economic sanctions on Russia when they invaded Crimea back in 2014. But this combined approach on export controls is something new. So it, just to sort of summarize where we are on the, on the export control front, these countries have all decided to put export controls on products that are ranged from a telecommunications products and semiconductor products to navigation, avionics type products to information security, including mass market encryption items to vessels to aircraft, all of these items that are typically not controlled. So we have different layers of export controls, right? We have the the high level ones that are multilateral controls. And then we have really low level ones that the U.S. has only controlled in the past. We call those anti-terrorism controls and they're really low level, low level stuff. Little stuff. And to date, the other countries have not controlled it. Our allies have not controlled it. What's impressive here is, for example, Europe has created a list in Annex 7, it's called, and it's listing all of these things that uh, Europe has never controlled before. So those items, when they're shipped from any of the countries, require a license to go to Russia. In addition to sort of those straight export controls, the U.S. government has imposed something called the foreign direct product rule, which they use for Huawei, a very expanded extraterritorial rule. And they've taken the same one and they actually made it even bigger, even bigger for Russia. And there's actually two of them. There's one for all of Russia, which is bigger. And then there's one for all military end users on a list, which is even bigger still. So that's sort of the main controls in a nutshell. There's also military end use controls in addition to those which have been expanded as well. And yesterday, all of these were also applied to Belarus. So that's an, an additional one. So that's sort of like a quick nutshell of the export controls. On the OFAC side, so we're not talking about export controls, but now we're talking about other transactions. There's sort of a whole slew, a big range of different restrictions that they've put on. And some of our allies have done similar things, and it's more of a hodgepodge, but then an overlapping authorities. First, they've put in territorial sanctions, focusing, sort of saying no imports, exports, or investments in those eastern provinces of Ukraine that Russia had declared as sovereign nations. So they closed those off, sort of those are territorial sanctions. Then they blocked several banks. And when I say block, this is where they put them on a list called the Specially Designated National and Blocked Persons or SDN list, and they prohibit U.S. persons from engaging in any transactions with those banks and freeze their assets. But it's not just banks. They also put the main company behind the Nord Stream 2 energy pipeline on that list. They also put a bunch of other Russian entities, and they've threatened yesterday, but they haven't come out with it yet, a a list of several defense-related entities from Russia that are going to be on that list as well. Many of those our European allies have put on lists as well. Sometimes their blocking is not exactly coextensive with the United States, but it's it's getting pretty close. So there's that. There are also prohibitions just on debt and equity transactions with certain entities. So these are entities that are also on a list, but you're not required to stop all transactions with them, only certain debt and equity transactions, for example, lending them money more than 13 or 14 days, those sort of transactions. Additionally, there's another sort of separate set of correspondent account transaction restrictions, which says, you know, certain banks that we've named 
U.S. banks are not allowed to have correspondent accounts with them. And, and correspondent accounts are where banks have bank accounts with each other. And the reason they have those accounts is because two people, one in Italy and one in Russia, might want to do business in dollars. You might want to dollarize their transaction. And to do that, you tend to have to run that through a U.S. financial institution. So the Russian entities bank and the Italian entities bank both have bank accounts in the U.S. with U.S. banks, correspondent accounts. And they send the transfer through those account correspondent accounts in order to be able to have this whole thing in dollars. What the U.S. has done is said there are a number of banks in Russia now that can no longer have those correspondent accounts and shut them off. So those transactions that would otherwise have been in dollars, and dollars are usually what's used in international transactions because of the steadiness of the U.S. dollar, those now can't happen the way they used to. So a whole slew of different transactions that are prohibited. The last one I'll just mention is de-swifting. The U.S. has said we're de-swifting, but they haven't named the banks that we're going to de-swift yet. The Europeans have already named some banks in Russia. And SWIFT is an international protocol for banks talking to each other to do transactions. And so even if you didn't have a U.S. correspondent account or needed it, but you could go directly to the Russian bank and send your funds transfer, you'd always be using the SWIFT network. That's a very common network for international banks to use for sort of a, a member-based group. So all the members of the banking community need to agree to take a bank off. The Europeans have now de-swifted a bunch of Russian banks, and I think the U.S. and Canada are going to be following suit pretty shortly. I'm going to turn it back to Hunter, but have one follow-up on that. You said that the banks or that we have not quite been as swift with the swift issues. Do we have an estimate right now regarding what percentage of the banking transactions would be prohibited if, for example, we do join the European Union with the SWIFT sanctions on the designated banks. In other words, what I've not been able to get a handle on is, you know, we've heard some banks are being, let's say, sanctioned. And the question is, what percentage of the total banking network does that represent if there is any such uh, estimate? I actually don't know for sure. I know that they've sanctioned in one way or the other, either by blocking or by putting correspondent account sanctions on the three and four largest banks in Russia. My guess is that something close to a third or a half of the banking business that was done with the United States from Russia has now been frustrated by these. Either it's been prohibited outright because of the bank, you know, they're blocked or it's made very difficult because of correspondent account sanctions. I actually don't think the de-swifting of, of the few additional banks is going to do that much more for U.S.-Russia-related transactions, but it will do more for international transactions that are going to other parts of the world. Can I make one follow-up comment, Malcolm? And that is banks are very risk-averse. Yes. And therefore, if they can't... Uh, if, if it's hard for them to figure out what the risk level of a particular transaction, they just say, no, no, thank you. <laughs> um, and so you're going to you've seen some of this already and you're going to see more and more of it where banks say this is just not worth it for us. We prefer to do these other transactions, you know, in Africa or in South America, or America, where we're going to make lots of money and we're not going to have to deal with all of this. So. Just like you've seen a number of companies pull out who may not necessarily have needed, strictly speaking, to pull out, you're going to see the same thing from the banking community, sort of like a snowball going down a steep mountain. And if I could just add to that, that's, you know, OFAC actually has a term for that called overcompliance, and it regularly happens, and it's happening. What's unique about these sanctions from my point of view so far is the amount of overcompliance is tremendous. The people that are pulling out of Russia, the banks that are just stopping, even though they can still do the business, is very high. So and we tell our clients regularly, that might still be viable, and that's completely legal, but you might want to talk to your bank first because they might not be interested in doing any business with Russia anymore. Yeah, that's called the I think I'd rather not effect. Yeah. Okay, something <laughs> like that. Hunter, well, back to you. 
I'm, I'm fascinated listening to all of this. Like you, Malcolm, I've been tra- fielding a lot of clients, especially from calls from foreign clients about the scope of the sanctions, what they apply to. So I thought I might use the next few minutes, Kay and, and Matthew, if you could help us sort of understand that. Then I want to come back to this over compliance issue because it gets to commercial liability issues that I want to try and, and understand a little bit better. So the first question I have is really the export controls and this related notion of the foreign direct product rules, to whom, to whom do they apply? Who is prohibited by these rules from exporting something to Russia and Belarus? Okay, so first of all, these new rules, there's a carve out for all of our allies because allies have said they're going to impose similar controls. They don't apply in the 27 countries of the European Union or to Canada, UK, Japan, or New, Ze- New Zealand or Australia. So they don't apply there. So you, we're talking about other countries, such as the people Malcolm talks with in China, India, Korea, Taiwan, it applies there. And how it applies is if they are making a product and that product is not year 99. By that, I mean a really, really low-level product that's on any list. And the product is either the direct product of U.S. technology or software that falls within a certain set of control categories. There are categories three through nine. Then the product is subject to this foreign direct product rule and cannot go to Russia or cannot be used in a product that's going to Russia or cannot be used for to make a product that's going to Russia. It's really very broad. In addition, Even if, suppose you're making something in Taiwan that is not the direct product of U.S. technology or software that falls into one of those six categories. But somewhere along your production line, you have one major component, say a piece of testing equipment. And that testing equipment is made, say, in Malaysia. But the testing equipment itself is the direct product of this U.S. technology or software that makes all the products that come off that that line that are destined for Russia directly or indirectly in one of 50 different ways to be subject to this licensing requirement. So it's extremely broad um, and applies, as I said, to all countries except uh, our allies. Broad and it's almost impossible. I mean, you'd have to go through each line and figure out where the technology or software to build each one of those components on the production line come from. So the smart company that's exporting anything from any country to Russia or Belarus is going to have to stop and engage in a very thorough review in order to see whether, at least as a legal technical matter, that export is subject to the export controls, which gets me to the so what question. Um, what if they do? What if a, as you, come, you posited this uh, Taiwanese manufacturer that has a testing equipment, which itself is the product of U.S. software, therefore anything manufactured by that Taiwan company, let's say they're making, I don't know, uh, some kind of PPE or something, and they have Russian buyers. What if they go ahead and sell, but they're in violation? What are the consequences? So the Department of Justice is standing up a new task force to go after violations. Okay. And so, first of all, obviously they have to learn of this information, but that comes in through various channels. Competitors, employees are not happy, happy, you know. Uh, the world is a lot closer than you think. Certainly it used to be when I was a small child. So things do actually make it to U.S. investigative sources, which is broader than just DOJ. It's we have agents posted for commerce as agents posted in various countries, including Singapore, China and many other countries. Anyway, so the information gets there. 
the actual violations. So it's a violation and violations have a civil penalty, which is up to about $330,000 per violation or twice the value of the transaction, which is whichever is greater. There are criminal charges if it can be shown that this was a willful violation of over a million and up to 20 years jail times. Those are two of the sanctions, civil, criminal. Then there's the one that really bites, which is actually being put on an entity list or a denied party list or even an unverified list. So commerce has three different lists. They can put you on any one of the three. The unverified list is just if they can't verify what you've done with U.S. products, then they'll put you on the list and you can just sign a letter to essentially keep on getting stuff. But if you get on one of the other two lists, it's really pretty hard to get off. Even if you have a good reason to get off, it's really hard to get off. And at that point, you no longer can get products from U.S. companies or companies that make products that have U.S. inputs. They don't want to deal with you anymore because they don't want to take the risk. So that's a, that's a pretty big one. And if you're a non-U.S. company that's relying on U.S. technology, you can go out of business. If you can't get that technology, then that's quite a, a harsh sanction. So all three of those are possible. And in your experience, Kay, when there have been other sanctions, obviously quite different in scope and magnitude than what's happening this week, um, has there been a sufficiently robust enforcement that it causes companies to comply? Well, certainly there has been pretty substantial enforcement, I would say, with respect to certain sanctions regimes and with respect to certain concerns involving, for example, China and Russia. There certainly have been enforcement in those areas. I would say that, you know, your garden variety export control violation doesn't, particularly if the company just made a mistake, is more likely to be just simply closed out, particularly if there's been a voluntary disclosure. But if we're talking about, you know, transacting business with Iran or or Syria or Cuba, the U.S. enforcement agencies tend to go after particularly and, and in addition, China. They continue to go after cases involving China and Chinese scientists in the United States. We have a colleague who is going to be going to trial in a week and a half. So prosecution has been pretty strong in those areas. And this is just going to be stronger in Russia. There has been lots of prosecutions involving Russian companies and Russian individuals. But that's going to go way up with this new rule. And and just for the record, our colleague isn't going to trial. He's defending a client. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right. So as complicated and frightening as all of this sounds, one assumes that there are licenses. I know there are some exceptions, some broad categories called general licenses. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what are covered by those. I don't know, Matthew or or Kay, whoever wants to tackle that. There are different flavors of ice cream. You want to go first, Matthew, with your general licenses? Sure. The general licenses OFAC has put out, you know, generally deal with the blocking. So if someone's blocked and you otherwise can't do any transactions with them at all or all transactions are prohibited, then they'll add some general licenses that allow a wind down for X number of weeks. And I think there's a wind down that went for 30 days. They've also allowed for continued transactions for about two months with respect to energy transactions with respect to Russia. And that's sort of like play, putting a placeholder out there in two months as a as sort of something that they could take away or extend at that point in time. And, and Russia would be aware of it and hopefully would change its ways knowing that, that that timeline is coming up. I'm not sure whether Russia is really listening to that or not right now, but that's why, why they put those sort of timelines on. They often will, and, and they have put in place General licenses to allow U.S. government transactions, international organization transactions like with the U.N. or the World Health Programs and those sort of things or international banking agreements. I'm trying to think of what the other main general licenses have. Um, Pay taxes. 
pay taxes. That's true because one of the entities that they prohibited transactions with is the the Russian central bank. All U.S. entities that are in, you know, and, and U.S. individuals who are in Russia that need to pay taxes have to pay taxes into the central bank. That's how they collect their taxes. So we had some clients saying we can't pay taxes within a couple of days. OFAC just yesterday put out a license saying you can pay taxes into the central bank. Oddly, they actually said for the next month and a half, <laughs> and then it stops. Maybe that's very strange. OFAC normally doesn't do that. They, if once you're allowed to pay taxes to either the government of Venezuela or another government that's blocked, they usually. Don't put an endpoint on that general license, but here they actually have, suggesting that maybe starting a month and a half from now, U.S. individuals and companies in Russia can't pay taxes there anymore. I think that's a strange thing for them to do. But so those are the types of general licenses that are out on the, on the OFAC side. So on the commerce side, what we have are something called license exceptions that allow things to go. And there's some for governmental end uses, right? U.S. government end use is, is right there. There's a, a number of them. The more significant ones are the license exception ENC, which allows encryption items to go. That was just reduced in scope very substantially yesterday. And now you can only export encryption items that have been classified and qualify for license exception ENC to subsidiaries of countries that are fallen a couple country groups. It's a longer list than the allies. It includes places like Singapore and Israel and a bunch of other countries. So it's a broader list, Argentina, you know, Bulgaria, India. So it's a longer list, but it's still essentially subsidiaries of Western countries and allies of the United States. So that's an example of something that's been really narrowed down just in the last 24 hours. So those are license exceptions. What they mean is you don't have to do anything more. You don't have to apply for a license. You can just use them. You just have to make sure that your documentation shows them. Then you can actually apply for a license, but you can only apply for a license. There's a, a policy of denial on all license applications except for a few. One example, one where there is a case-by-case a, a case review policy, which means that they, they'll look at it, is, for example, if you have to do business with your subsidiary in Russia and you have to export items that require a license to that subsidiary in order to do the business, then they'll take a look at it and they'll evaluate it to see if what's the risk of you, the items you export being diverted to you know, military end uses or th- things that are bad for the U.S. government. Other examples of more affirmative case-by-case review is like to support international space flight, for example. The latest one that they just added yesterday is for the safety of nuclear power plants. And I'm like, yeah, good idea. So they they have a few of those, you know, um, uh, where they can grant licenses and they're going to be swamped. I was just going to note that the, the OFAC side allows for specific license requests to come in as well if you're not covered by the general license. And I failed to mention the, the sort of having agricultural medical products and COVID-related transactions so that companies that want to export food and medicine can still do that into into places in eastern Ukraine, for example, or dealing with Russian banks that otherwise they wouldn't be able to deal with. And I also saw that some consumer electronics get a general license. I guess they want to make sure that uh, phones and computers are freely distributable and sold. Uh, is that correct? It's partially correct. There are actually limits on that license exception, which is called license exception CCD. It can't go to the Russian government or the Belarus government or entities that are operating on behalf of them. And it also can't go to a list of of Russian government officials and Belarusian government officials. So it's not complete. But yes, it is a fairly broad license exception and allows uh, companies to keep on exporting things that are, you know, sort of consumer type mass market encryption products. Though I, I, I'll say I understand that some companies are deciding not to export anyway. Sure. So I haven't looked into those reports because I've been so busy giving advice. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we'll get right back to the overcompliance question, but I wanted to wrap up this part of the questioning on uh, the, the sanctions regime by talking just a little bit about the blocking sanctions and who they apply to. If we've talked about exporters and about the foreign direct product rules and export sanctions up till now, um, let's pivot just a little bit. Who is prohibited from what kinds of transactions with blocked persons? Sure. So when OFAC blocks persons, typically, and in this case, it it follows this rule, it primarily applies to U.S. persons. So that's U.S. citizens and permanent resident aliens, companies that are organized here, you know, entities from foreign companies, but that are located here, people actually within the United States. It doesn't automatically apply to an owner controlled overseas subsidiary of a U.S. company. But often there are U.S. people on the boards of directors and there are U.S. persons working in their senior management. Those are U.S. persons, even if they're working overseas and they can't be involved in transactions with blocked people. The other so what if you're on the board of directors of a I'm going to make this up a Peruvian sock manufacturer that right. is otherwise an entirely Peruvian company but it's got a couple of say American uh, green card holders or permanent resident aliens or whatever on the board of that company does that mean the company is now blocked from dealing with blocked persons or only those individuals? Only those individuals. Uh, you know, th- there, there may be a point at which those individuals are so much involved with the company, the company can't function without them. Usually we, we suggest recusal policies for board members that are there. If it's one or two members of a large board, that's easy. If it's the CEO and uh, the majority of the board, that's much more difficult and a company might be stuck, but the company itself is not subject to U.S. jurisdiction the same way as the individual board members are. Bring me right to this overcompliance sort of concern, because in the commercial world, there are plenty of companies that are suddenly facing all of this, you know, fog of confusion. Hopefully they're all running to one of the two of you because they'll get good answers clearly and quickly. <laughs> um, but I'll bet you a lot are just saying, I'm washing my hands of this. I can't perform under my contract to sell something to a Russian company. It's impossible, force majeure, all those kinds of things. I'm sure litigators like Malcolm and I are going to begin to see cases like that. And I think the focal point in that analysis, generally speaking, is whether or not it's really impossible. You know, how, how could they show that it's really impossible? And impossibility has sort of two flavors, factual and, and legal. You know, it's impossible without violating a criminal law or a sanctions. That's one thing. Impossible because I can't get a logistics company to get things there anymore, even though I'm willing to perform or legally able to perform. And I just wonder if you have some experience you can draw upon from prior sanction regimes to talk about that notion of overcompliance, where strictly speaking, if you really got into it, a law or a regulation on sanctions didn't apply or a person wasn't subject to the blocked person's list, um, but they end up just saying, no, they're not going to do it anyway. You talked about this concept of overcompliance. How frequently is that seen when regimes like this come out? It is seen more and more over the last 20 years in in my experience, and it's just reached a crescendo now. But at this point, part of what OFAC would probably like would be for the overcompliance to happen, given the the multilateral nature of these sanctions and the desire for Russia to stop what it's doing very quickly. So to some extent, they're happy with with the the overcompliance there. I have seen the kinds of things you're talking about where it's legally available and, you know, we could provide guidance that, yes, you could legally still do this, but it's just impossible. There's one aspect of the who has to abide by these rules that I didn't get to before that actually plays into this, not just U.S. persons, but any 
financial transaction that comes through the United States, even if it doesn't involve U.S. persons, if it bounces through the United States, that's also prohibited if it's with a blocked person. And there are foreign banks that have paid very large sums of money because they were sending transactions through the United States between two foreign people that weren't otherwise subject to our jurisdiction, but it went through U.S. As I mentioned before, U.S. dollars are used, as you know, and if it's U.S. dollars used, it usually has to go through the United States. So those sort of transactions uh, and the restrictions on those really make the international business actually legally impossible because they're in U.S. dollars. The contract says it needs to be paid in U.S. dollars, or that's what you've agreed to, and you can't do that because it's going to go through a U.S. financial institution. So in those situations, actually, there's much more legal ability to say, look, that that contract can't move forward. This is beginning to sound familiar to me as a lawyer that deals with FCPA compliance and investigations uh, overseas, that even if you're not a U.S. person and your company has significant nexus with the United States, if an improper payment is realized through a U.S. bank account, you're in serious trouble under that regime. Yeah, I wanted to add one point on the force majeure clauses. I mean, uh, force majeure clauses by themselves are typically not written broadly enough to deal with a situation where you, you're technically not legally prohibited, but you, it's just going to be really difficult. I've been an expert witness in, in a case involving not, not a sanctions case, but on similar issues and arbitration tribunals tend to take a, a very hard line as what is actually impossible. So you're better off looking to see if your contract has any uh, sanctions compliance clauses because those tend to be written more broadly and you may be able to to uh, get some relief appointing it saying hey see what you said in this particular clause i can't perform because of this or you know if it's broadly enough worded it you know it may say you know in your sole discretion <laughs> you know cannot comply that if you get that lucky but i'm i'm just saying there are some contracts that have those things and you may take a look at those before you throwing up your hands and trying force majeure because force majeure may not work yeah, I've been putting the word out there on that effect. In fact, we're uh, working on putting out an alert to that effect that, you know, it's an anticipatory breach if you refuse to perform a contract and that isn't otherwise justified. Um, but there is also a mechanism under the U.S. UCC and common law where those are the laws that apply to contracts uh, where a party can uh, seek adequate assurances of performance from a counterparty and say, look, I'm not sure you can pay me because of the blocking sanctions on your bank, or I'm not sure you can deliver me something because you have to import it from somewhere else, and there might be an export control on that. And you can, in appropriate circumstances, a party may be able to employ the remedy of suspending performance until they receive adequate assurances of performances. And similarly, someone who has a force majeure argument, but they're not sure how strong it is, might want to run to their arbitrators and seek a declaratory judgment and have that controversy determined if it's a real live controversy. The courts, not just in the United States, but elsewhere that have looked at awards like you described, Kay, or other legal decisions have have not paved a path that is straight and narrow and clear (laughs) when it comes to whether or not a sanction provides a basis for relief from performance. That's absolutely true. Well, Malcolm, uh, we've learned a whole lot here. Let me turn it back over to you to finish up the questioning. Sure. Thank you, Hunter. And yes, it's fascinating, interesting, and also nerve wracking, I think, because of the uncertainties. I was going to ask what's on the horizon. And what I mean by that is that we know that as of yesterday, Kay advised us of the Belarus sanctions. And so we now know that Russia's sanctioned, the two newly declared republics are sanctioned, and Belarus is sanctioned. We hear a lot about Russia-China collaboration. We've seen the countries that 
that have abstained from a vote on condemnation of the invasion. And I guess the question is, what's the word on future countries that may be pulled into the sanctions regime? That's the first part of the question while you're thinking about that. The second part of it is that we've also heard about the individual sanctions which have been put on uh, Mr. Putin himself, as well as, I think, three other individuals. And how does that play into things? Is that more symbolic or does that have a direct and immediate business impact? I'll throw that out to both of you and uh, at the same time and see who wants to jump in. On the country point, I'm not aware of any other country that's providing the sort of support that Belarus has been providing in the invasion of Ukraine. So there may be others down the pike, but I don't see anybody at, at that level. The, the White House did announce that uh, additional sanctions were going to be imposed in terms of oil and gas sanctions. Those were waiting to find out what exactly is done there and how they're imposed. So that's something that we do know is coming. And it might have even come out during the last conference call or two. <laughs> so but as far as I'm aware, it's, it's, it's not out there right, right yet. Matthew, I don't know if yes. you want to have- yeah, I don't, and I think those oil and gas ones are, are more on the export control. We're expecting them to be more on the yeah. export control side than on, for example, prohibiting transactions involving Russian origin or oil and gas. That's obviously a touch point for, for Europe and, and their importation of gas from Russia. So I don't think the, the, the sort of what's on the horizon, people have talked about those sort of oil and gas uh, restrictions on Russia or restrictions on exports from Russia. I don't think that's being talked about too seriously yet. There's a lot more they can do, a lot more oligarchs or senior political folks in Russia that they could sanction. You know, is it more not a real sanction when they hit Putin? I think that was more of a, a statement than an actual real change to hit Putin with sanctions. But his friends who are very, very rich people and who care a lot, and th- th- some of them are beginning to speak out about wanting to see an end of the conflict. They're not saying who's wrong in this conflict, but they're saying they, they want to see an end of the conflict. And there's been uh, at least two of the oligarchs that have been sanctioned sort of already speaking that way. I found that interesting. I didn't expect to see that sort of stuff happening. And so I think think that's going to encourage OFAC to hit more oligarchs and that there's a whole list of a lot more, you know, fairly rich, mostly men, and they own businesses around the world. And one of the things that happens when you're a blocked person, there's a 50% rule that any any company that you own 50% or more of and any company that that company owns 50% or more of, they're all blocked as well, whether they're on the list or not. So, you know, very, very rich people have, have money all around the world. And the other thing I see possibly coming is given the size of the rushing economy and the, the wealth of these people that we're hitting, you may see a freezing up of world economy. The world economy is going to take a much bigger hit than just the sanctions on Iran when that happened or the sanctions on Yugoslavia years ago that were multilateral. These multilateral sanctions on Russia, when Russia is the 11th largest economy, I think, by GDP in the world, you know, that's going to possibly cause some pain here at home, notwithstanding what, what President Biden says that we're going to do the best to keep that pain from happening. So that's an interesting effect that's going to happen. And I don't know, you know, whether that's going to force to sort of stay our hand a little bit and have us be a little bit more careful. It's easy to sanction a small country and keep it sanctioned for decades, like a a Cuba. It's sort of easy. It's very hard to have sanctions work and hold the multilateral sanctions against a very large country. The other thing just to mention is that uh, the other thing the White House said yesterday is they're putting full blocking sanctions on 22 Russian defense-related entities. Mm-hmm. Those are the firms that make combat aircraft, infantry, fighting vehicles, uh, electronic warfare, missiles, and the like. So that's that's another uh, a shooter to drop in the next day or so. Thank you for that. I think that's a perfect place for us to start to wind up. Hunter, do you have a, a one last thought? 
Uh, no, I think that uh, it's a good time to wrap up. There's so much more to cover, and we'll probably be putting out a couple more of our uh, podcast special episodes in, in the days to come. We haven't even touched the expansion of the anti-kleptocrat initiatives. Uh, these were discussed in a very detailed report the Biden administration put out from the White House in December as a part of new whole-of-government approach to dealing with kleptocrats and their assets, finding them, revealing them, and, and recapturing them when they are illicit assets. And parts of that have already been kicked into place in addition to these blocking sanctions. Maybe we'll cover those and, and other issues in a future episode. For now, we are so grateful to have had you both here. I know how busy you are with everyone ringing your phone off the hook, trying to get guidance and advice. Very important, I think, for our clients, our business friends, and, and colleagues around the world to have a very helpful guide to the different kinds of sanctions and who they apply to. And you've provided that to us today. So we're really glad to have you. And, and thanks very much again. Sure. Pleasure. Yeah. We've also put out a number of alerts that you should take a look at too, because some of this is very down in the weeds and it's easier sometimes to understand when you read it rather than listen to it. Yeah. I reinforce that message. The the Aaron Fox Schiff website, uh, if you just put in sanctions in the search bar, will get you all of these recent alerts. You can sign up to receive more of them. They're very thorough and I found them quite helpful in in helping me prepare to advise clients. So we do call our uh, listeners attention to those as well. And we try to be funny too when we can. It's not, not, necessarily, a fun, not necessarily a funny subject, but it's hard at two in the morning. Uh, you no, know, absolutely. Well, I was just going to underscore that in your earlier comment, Hunter, and you did a great job. I wanted everyone to know that, yes, those resources are there. Uh, Aaron Fox Schiff wants to stay on top of this. And also one other thing that Hunter said that I want to underscore, we are, we are planning to get this updated on a regular basis and we will be putting out alerts as events require. If there's additional sanctions, additional sanctionees, et cetera, uh, also I want to put on a program of the impact on international arbitration involving Russia and Belarus related parties. And what, how does that impact an arbitration procedure? Is that covered? Is that sanctioned? So we have lots of topics that's, that, uh, that uh, will spawn from this. So stay tuned, everyone. Before you go, you were just talking. I just checked real quickly and indeed, you know, several new oligarchs, the 22 um, Russian defense entities and a bunch of entities related to information in Russia have now been put on OFAC's SDN list. So we have another alert to to write, Kay. <laughs> we will let you get to that alert. Malcolm and I will start putting our heads together. We have to talk about a Russian law that countermands arbitration clauses and forum selection clauses in any contract affecting Russian nationals or their businesses uh, if and when sanctions apply to and could harm those businesses and imposes a mandatory uh, forum selection clause of Russian commercial courts called the arbitrage. So we'll have a lot to discuss around arbitration. We have a lot to discuss around new sanctions. We thank you guys for today. That's it from World Smart. We'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Yes, you get out there and start rushing on that next alert. Uh, Talk to you soon.